0: Welcome to the Federal Society's Practice Group Podcast. The following podcast, hosted by the Federal Society's Litigation Practice Group, was recorded on Monday, March 23, 2020, during a live teleform conference call held exclusively for Federal Society members. Welcome to the Federal Society's Teleform Conference Call. This afternoon's topic is titled, Leaving Them Speechless Does the SEC Silence Criticism? My name is Michael Wallen, and I'm the Assistant Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. As always, all expressions of opinion are those of the expert on today's call. Today, we are fortunate to have with us Peggy Little, who is a Senior Litigation Counsel for the New Civil Liberties Alliance. After our speaker gives her opening remarks, we will then go to an audience Q&A. Thank you for sharing with us today. Peggy, the floor is yours. Thank
1: you so much, and thank you to everyone who has attended this call. I know there are many issues occupying the thoughts and concerns of everyone here, and thank you for taking the time to attend. As Michael indicated, I am the, one of the senior litigation counsels at a New Civil Liberties Alliance, and we represent Barry Romero, who is a former CFO of Xerox, in a post-judgment challenge to set aside the gag order portion of a consent that the SEC required of him when he settled his case with the SEC 16 years ago. The grounds for our uh, challenge to the consent order and the GAG are, are many. They range from administrative law issues to standard First Amendment issues to due process issues. I'm going to list them very briefly so that everyone has a sense of how comprehensive our challenge is, the varied grounds we have made, and that I hope will lead to a lively discussion. The first interesting thing to know about the 1972 gag rule, which was enacted by the SEC simply by publication in the uh, Federal Register, is that it was unlawfully enacted. The SEC slipped that gag rule into the uh, Federal Register in 1972 and, and said, because this is a mere housekeeping rule, we do not have to engage in prior publication or allow notice or comment, and they cited a number of statutory provisions that they said allowed for that under the 33 Act, the 34 Act, and a couple of other uh, securities acts. An examination of those statutes makes it quite clear that this rule does not fall within the housekeeping concerns. The major reason is because it binds others outside the uh, agency and imposes restrictions on third parties. And so from its very inception in 1972, this has been an unlawful gag rule. Now, for 50 years, or close to 50 years, the SEC has been telling anyone who settled his or her, or if it's an entity, their case with the SEC, that they are required to uh, agree that they will not talk about their case in any way that questions the enforcement action or calls um, into doubt the fact that the SEC charges might have some merit to them. This came to NCLA's attention, In 2018 so the first step we took was to file an administrative petition with the SEC asking them to amend the gag rule and I think the first and an important distinction for um, people to understand about this case is we are not asking the SEC to change the fact that people can settle with the agency on a no admit no deny basis Later in this conversation, I will show why that's important. But our petition to amend that was filed with the SEC in November of 2018 simply asked the SEC to remove the gag portions, which speak to what people can say about the charges brought against them, and change the rule to say only that people might either admit to specific things, they may deny specific things, or they can agree to settle on a no-admit, no-deny basis. And that's it. There's no uh, provisions in the rule about what people can say after they settle, and that's the uh, change that we have proposed. Filing that petition, I published an editorial in the uh, Wall Street Journal, which came to the attention of Senator Tom Cotton. And not very long afterwards, he called um, Chairman Jay Clayton before the Senate Banking Committee and questioned him in, in quite a lively session about whether the gag rule was constitutional. What's interesting about that video clip, and I can make that available to any callers who are interested, is that Chairman Clayton effectively deflected the issue and treated it as if the petition was seeking to uh, set aside the no admit, no deny settlement posture, which is a very popular way to settle cases, as you might imagine, because nobody wants to have civil liability follow their settlement with the SEC. So what I have found interesting is when challenged on the rule, the SEC ducks and deflects but does not really address the fact that their rule provides for suppression of speech. Now subsequent to filing that petition in the Senate hearing, NCLA, which is New Civil Liberties Alliance for which I work, we were contacted uh, by uh, Barry Romerle, who was CFO formerly of the Xerox Corporation, who wanted to challenge his bet gag order. The Second Circuit is an excellent circuit to which to bring such a challenge because there is a uh, compelling 1963 precedent called Crosby, Crosby v. Bradstreet, which is the predecessor to Dunn and Bradstreet, and that case holds that a consent agreement entered into as a settlement that provides for prior restraint of future speech is per se unconstitutional, and a court has no authority to enter into it in the first place no authority to enforce it and it must be set aside as unconstitutional under the first amendment so the second circuit is an excellent circuit in which to challenge it and we brought that challenge in may of 2019 the first amendment grounds that we raise is just a whole laundry list it's a forbidden prior restraint it gives the sec unbridled enforcement discretion because if you speak in a way that is not congenial to the SEC about the charges made against you, they can reopen your prosecution. It silences the defendant in perpetuity. You cannot ever speak about your case or talk about how the charges against you may have been weak or even not legally well-founded. It also is a content-based restriction on speech because it specifically says you may not call into question the charges brought against you or somehow cast doubt upon the charges the SEC has brought against you. Sometimes the uh, gag order even mandates the content of speech. We found some gag orders that provided what you have to say if you're asked about your uh, consent to, that you, you specifically cannot uh, deny any part of it. So it, it mandates the content of your speech, which is, again, constitutionally prohibited. It serves no compelling government interest. It does not operate by the least restrictive means. Instead, it's a lifetime gag on all speech. It also forbids truthful speech, and I'll give an example of that in a moment. Uh, It's an unconstitutional condition. Essentially, what the SEC is saying is if you want to settle to us, you have to agree to give up all of your future First Amendment rights about this in, uh, in perpetuity. It uh, also violates a defendant's First Amendment right to petition. If you wanted to go to, say, Congress or the SEC and say, hey, these charges brought against me were not well-founded, or there's been subsequent evidence that shows that it was brought on weak or even perjured evidence, you don't have the ability to do that. And so it impairs also your First Amendment rights of petition. And this is an important issue, I think, for the public at large to also understand It deprives third parties of relevant information about the prosecution. Um, And this was a a concern that was expressly addressed by the Second Circuit in the Crosby decision. In that 1963 decision, the Second Circuit said that silencing what Bradstreet could publish in the future impairs the public's right to know about truthful matters. So one of the uh, things in a lot of recent scholarship on the First Amendment focuses not just on the speaker's right, but on the listener's right to hear the information. And that is not something that can be waived by a defendant to a prosecution. And then, as a policy matter, obviously it impairs transparency and it insulates the SEC from appropriate criticism. NCLA also brought due process challenges to the gag orders that, you know, obviously they are compelled upon uh, settling defendants. It's unconstitutionally vague because it says if you even create an impression that the charges were not well-founded, that is a violation. So the vagueness is pretty obvious from the content of the rule. It also implicates the judiciary in violating the Constitution, because what it provides as a penalty is that the judge can reopen the prosecution against you. The gag rule is also contrary to public policy that favors transparency in government. After um, NCLA's case got fully briefed to the Second Circuit, an interesting development and happy development happened, uh, which was that the Fourth Circuit issued an opinion just days after we uh, completed our briefing that said that the uh, city of Baltimore cannot require gag orders in settlements of police brutality cases. And that Fourth Circuit opinion raises many of the same arguments that I've just laid out. We advised district court judge in the Southern District of New York, Judge Coates, of that decision in a 28J letter, but it made no appearance in her decision. Now, The judge's decision is interesting for any number of reasons, but I think the most distinctive part of the opinion is how much it avoids any of these issues. It barely mentions the First Amendment. Instead, the main holding of of Judge Coates' uh, decision is that 16 years is too long to wait. And that Mr. Romero waited too long to challenge his gag. That's an unsatisfying ground for a judicial decision on First Amendment grounds, as I think any listener could figure out, because if 16 years is too long, what then is the right period of time? Would it be six months? Would it be six years? 16 years? That's not how First Amendment law and doctrine work. There's really no statute of limitations on your First Amendment rights. What is also uh, disturbing about the district court's opinion from Judge Coate, who'd entered that order 16 years ago, is that it completely ignores the Crosby decision, other than saying uh, questioning whether it's still good law. Now, in, in the Crosby decision, the consented-upon gag that they had set aside was 30 years old. And so what you have is a district court judge not not only treating a Second Circuit precedent that binds her decision as essentially not good law, but for a reason that 16 years is too long, that the case itself um, proves to be faulty because that set aside a 30-year-old DAG provision. The judge also talks briefly about how due process issues were not properly in the case. And as I have set forth... NCLA, in its opening brief, set forth several due process challenges in Roman numeral sections. And yet, uh, her decision, it says in a footnote that those, these due process claims were only raised in a footnote in a reply brief, which is demonstrably not true. What is unsatisfying about all of the responses of the SEC is the pattern of deflection that I see here. From the very time of the rules enactment, the SEC was being untruthful to the public, saying this was a mere housekeeping rule when it was not. When Chairman Clayton appeared before the Senate Banking Committee, he treated this as if it were a challenge to no admit, no deny, which it is not. The district court decision brazenly defied the Crosby decision and misrepresented the arguments made to the court, And the SEC opposing papers also were really quite unfair and they suggested that, well, the defendant had waived this issue and had also agreed to the the gag, when on on the other hand they admit that it's a requirement and it's non-negotiable. So there's a lot of deflection and distortion of what the issues are in this case, and I think it makes it both a vulnerable decision on appeal and one that would be very interesting for people who are concerned about the abuse of administrative power in these proceedings uh, to challenge. Another big concern is the way the SEC handles public relations. When the SEC settles a case with a respondent or a defendant, well, I'm sorry, when they bring a case against a respondent or defendant, their press releases are notorious for their inflammatory rhetoric and uh, the seriousness of the charges. And many of those uh, inflammatory press releases are proven later to have been wildly overblown, if not, in fact, unprovable um, in, in reality. And here's the problem. A defendant or respondent who's been charged with these serious and very public claims of uh, fraud or worse has no recourse if they settle, because that's the last word the public will ever hear, because they are silenced. So the issues are really quite important. Reputations are immediately destroyed. Businesses are often destroyed. Employees are put out of work. Reputations tarnished for life. And if you settle with the FCC you really have no ability to correct that record. The Statistics on how the SEC operates and how many cases settle are also relevant to this inquiry, although I would maintain that your First Amendment rights are absolute and whether or not the settlement numbers varied, it, this still would be an important and very valid challenge. But as everybody knows, anybody charged by the SEC has huge incentives to capitulate and agree to settle very early in the process. In Mr. Romero's own case, the case was filed by the SEC. The press releases were very serious and very uh, reputation damaging. And yet, three days later, he and his co-defendants settled very quickly with the SEC because that's how the negotiation process works. And that's because the SEC wins something like in a 90% area, maybe high 90% area, of all of its cases brought before its own administrative law judges. Furthermore, um, the settlement statistics are that 98% of people settled with the SEC. So they have tremendous um, leverage. And then by enacting this rule and imposing this policy that for decades now has silenced people, that means they can pretty much charge someone and say whatever they like about that person and that is, will be the last the public ever hears on these issues. So we hope at New Civil Liberties Alliance to set aside this policy and allow people to settle with the FCC on a negotiated and fair basis and retain their rights of free expression going forward. One other issue that uh, we're interested in pursuing is SEC policy and even their rules about what is or is not a violation of the securities laws change. For example, they can issue new guidances that make uh, something that was previously never considered to be unlawful, uh, whether by guidance or regulation by enforcement, conduct that everyone had thought was okay suddenly becomes the subject of SEC charges. And again, because virtually everyone settles their cases, That goes not only to silence you uh, and uh, about your case, but future defendants are given these settlements as examples of what uh, the FCC can do to you and why you need to conform to these uh, new guidances or policies that, in fact, have never been enacted by Congress. So the effects upon SEC's practices by enforcement, by Um, or rather regulation by enforcement are are quite serious and something uh, I'm pleased to say that SEC Commissioner Hester Peirce has has published about and we have cited her insightful and thoughtful comments about that in our various petitions and other matters uh, that we have brought uh, to the the court's attention. I think those are the main issues. There are some other, as as I alluded to, um, there's some other challenges gag orders in in other courts, and and if uh, folks on the call are aware of those, the Cato Institute and Institute for Justice brought a challenge, and that, too, was not given any real hearing by the court on a standing issue, just as our um, issue was not given any real hearing by the district court and, and operated through a policy of deflecting the real First Amendment issues at stake. I would be very interested to open up the call to to comment and questions. The major hurdle I think we face in any court challenge is that the SEC, in complicity with courts, have been entering these gag orders for decades, and so there will be a natural aversion on the part of courts to say, hey, what we've been doing for decades is illegal. I think just that concern that we've been doing this forever is uh, one of the hurdles we have to overcome, and I would enjoy discussing that with anyone who's on the call who has thoughts about that. So at this time, if we could open up the call to questions uh, and/or comments. That would be most welcome.
0: Absolutely, thank you so much, Peggy, for those comprehensive and, and, and really enlightening remarks. We really appreciate your time being here. We'll now I'll go to the first question in the queue. Hi, Margaret. Steve Klein. Really great uh, presentation. Really appreciate you taking the time today. What would be the penalty for violating the gag order, and uh, has anyone ever been been penalized for, for violating an SEC gag order? Thank you. That's a good question.
1: The penalty is set forth in the gag order that everyone signs, and it says the SEC may reopen the prosecution and that the court retains jurisdiction. I don't know, actually, if that has happened. I do know that defendants operate under a great fear that it will happen. The SEC certainly maintains to anyone with whom it enters into a settlement that it has the power to do this. And because what people do when they settle is they're trying to put this behind them. Very often, uh, you know, this operates as as suppressing speech, you know, even 16 years later. And and it's not just a sense of concern. Um, It turns out that there's collateral bar rule um, that certainly operates in the federal courts that prohibits a party from challenging a district court's order by violating it. So let's say you've settled with the SEC and it turns out that whatever... Guidance or policy that they had brought against you has been shown to really not violate the securities law Under the collateral bar rule you can't go out and just say that or if you do you are in violation of that rule Um, instead You're you're, you are supposed to move to vacate or modify the order or seek relief in the court Um, that's a second circuit precedent Barry Romerle, who does wish to engage in truthful speech, has followed that procedure and under Rule 60 has moved the court uh, to set aside the gag portion of his rule so that he can speak.
2: So it's damned if you do, damned if you don't in this situation, (laughs) given the
1: ruling. It really is. I mean, very few people would risk reopening of a prosecution. They know they face tremendous odds when they have settled. So the whole point of settlement is to set the thing be- behind them and to get on with the, their lives. And what we what we hear anecdotally in enough numbers that I would say it goes beyond a anecdotally is most people settle and they don't either know or fully understand that that means they can't talk about their case for life. And they entered into those agreements because it's a condition of settlement, and then they find, you know, upon years reflection sometimes years later that they want to talk about their case, that goal of getting the case off their back has, in fact, made it them unable to defend themselves in the court of public opinion, which is particularly brutal when the, the pre-charging or the publicity at the time of charging has ruined their reputation. So amongst the many other concerning things about the gag rule is that people sign it and then only years later, come to understand what his has really meant and why it makes them unable to uh, repair their reputations.
0: All right. We'll now move to our next question.
2: Hi, Peggy. I just wanted to uh, thank you very much for your wonderful work in this area. Obviously, uh, it's a real First Amendment problem to uh, prohibit people for life from speaking in areas like this, I would hope that perhaps the SEC might be eventually persuaded to voluntarily change its policy. Of course, all the time, people are permitted to uh, give up their constitutional rights in a settlement, say, of a criminal proceeding. You can uh, agree to have yourself locked up in jail for some number of years as part of a settlement of criminal charges. So I would think perhaps there's some analogy here that there's obviously case law that limits the number of years that you can be put away for a a, a criminal charge that, yes, you can uh, agree to serve a two-year sentence for an armed robbery that you potentially could have served 20 years for and and have a plea deal, but after those two years are up, you are free. And I, I would think that there must be some sort of equivalent constitutional standard that would say that, yes, you can be permitted to waive your constitutional rights to speak, but there has to be some reasonable time limit on that.
1: You're raising an an excellent point, I mean, under existing law, murderers can't have their rights uh, to even publish about their crimes, restricted at all, and yet, um, you know, people who've done far worse things, and, and in fact, U.S. attorneys in criminal cases don't enter into gag agreements. That for me was one of the most interesting things I learned in doing this. Now, you can, when you, you uh, plead to a, a criminal action, you can agree that, that you admit to a specific crime, and then if you, if you go out and later deny that, there are penalties for that. We don't have a problem with that, and in fact, um, NCLA's petition to um, amend the rule does allow for admissions or denials as to specific things. But when you have this blanket agreement that you'll never talk about your case in per- perpetuity, as you point out, the proportionality or rather the disproportionality of the uh, term under which you are gagged to whatever the uh, underlying charges might be is wildly um, out of proportion. As to the uh, what I call the waiver issue, which is that you can Voluntarily give up your rights. The SEC certainly brought that up in their briefing. It did not play much of a part in Judge Coates' decision. But the response to the argument that yes, you can give up your rights of appeal, which of course you do when you settle a case, or other rights that pertain to the cessation of a dispute, is that those are necessarily bundled in what it means to settle a case. Whereas your rights of future speech have nothing to do with the mechanics of ceasing a dispute and what it takes to do that. The best case on that, and one one that we cite in our papers, is a case, I believe it's out um, in the Ninth Circuit, where someone had settled their case and then had to agree not to run for public office in the future, and the Ninth Circuit appropriately set that aside as having nothing to do with the settlement of a dispute and the fact that, yes, you do give up your rights of appeal and and other constitutional rights because that's what it means to settle a case. So when you look at the issues that way, the waiver argument essentially disappears because this this has to do with future speech. It is not at all necessary to the resolution of claims in the immediate action, and for that reason is uh, properly and rightfully distinguishable and should not be made a condition of settlement by any government authority.
0: Peggy, I'll throw back to you for any closing remarks you have for us today.
1: Yeah, I think if I were to crystallize this issue in one or two sentences, it would be this. Congress itself could not lawfully pass a law that said any time you settle your case with the federal government, you have to agree to be silent about it. I think most people on this call would agree, A, it's almost unthinkable to see that, to think that anybody would ever um, propose that such a law be enacted. It would be wildly unpopular if it came to the public's uh, attention and was debated in Congress. Any president who correctly interpreted the Constitution would veto it. And finally, it, even in the very unlikely event that such a statute would get passed, a court would set it aside in a minute. The First Amendment says Congress shall pass no law that abridges the freedom of speech and and certainly a law that said you can't talk about any case you settled with the government does just that. So the big question and the one that NCLA hopes to to settle through this uh, litigation is if Congress itself could not enact such a statute, why should a mere administrative agency think it has this power? NCLA contends that the SEC and the CFTC do not have that power and that a court should properly understand that and set the gag aside.
0: Well, Actually, one question just popped into line, so
3: without sure.
0: further ado, we'll, we'll try and squeeze one more question in here.
3: Hey, it's uh, Joe Becker in Auburn, Alabama. i was sympathetic to this because there was a time when I did some English language in the workplace cases where the EEOC would basically bully people into settling because it was too expensive not to, and then they would run press releases, even though there was no statute that prohibited language in the workplace restrictions. That's what they wanted the law to be, so they would basically settle the case and then run press releases that said this is what happens when you have a language in the workplace regulation or whatever. I never remember them trying to limit the speech of the people who did that, but I can imagine that happening. But my second point is I recently did public interest litigation in Nevada, and with the Public Records Act – states were basically what what I remember and it's been a, a couple of years but what I remember is the public records act sort of preempted the state from entering into these these gag agreements because someone would just file a public records act action with the state agency and say hey I want to see what kind of you know settlements you negotiated is there anything in the uh, in FOIA that would allow someone to sort of raise this issue as a FOIA challenge
1: well, you you raise several issues because we have some FOIA requests right now um, are focusing on what the heck was even in Congress, or rather, the SEC's mind when it slipped this rule into the Federal Register. And so far, the FOIA requests that we have filed in that matter have not been particularly forthcoming. But when, of course, when someone settles their case, they have a view of it. You know, the person who is charged. That view is never in the record if you settle it quickly, which is how most of these things happen. So even if you made a FOIA request to find out what there is to know about the case, all you're going to get is the FCC's version of events. You know, if the case had gotten contested, there might be um, some testimony. But even there, if you were, for example, a good reporter, you'd want to hear the FCC's side and you want to hear the respondent's side if you are going to write an article about it or a book about it. And unfortunately, when you call up the respondent, he has to say, "Mm, can't talk, I could be re-prosecuted. And so that's this is how it suppresses speech, this is how it suppresses the truth, this is how it expands the power of uh, the SEC to bring uh, charges that may be wildly beyond what they, in fact, could carry the burden of proof on in a courtroom, and yet that worst version of events that they set forth in the press releases is the only thing that is in the record for anyone wanting to examine the operations of the agency.
3: So I guess if the settlement terms are such that don't allow the defendants, we'll call it, the de- the defendants' position into the settlement agreement, then I guess the settlement agreement as a public record is basically worthless anyway, is what you're saying. Exactly. That's exactly okay. what I'm saying. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, with no other questions, Hugh, on behalf of the Federalist Society, we'd like to thank our expert for the benefit of her valuable time and expertise today. We welcome listener feedback by email at info at fedsoc.org. Thank you all for joining us. We are adjourned.
2: Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this practice group podcast. For materials related to this podcast and other Federalist Society multimedia, please visit the Federalist Society's website at fedsoc.org slash multimedia.